Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Red Leg Nation Radio. I'm your host, Chad Dotson. You know, not a lot going on right now in uh, in Red Leg Nation in the, with the world of the Cincinnati Reds, and playoffs are happening, and they've been amazing. Uh, we watched Dusty Baker kind of manage his way out of yet another series uh, this week with the Washington Nationals. Good to see Chris Heisey hit a two-run homer there in the uh, deciding game for the Nationals, and uh, good to see Aroldis Chapman and Edwin Encarnacion, some other former Reds, doing well. Johnny Cueto pitched great for the Giants. Of course, they were eliminated. Uh, but with the Reds, the current Reds, <laughs> such as they are, not a whole lot going on right now. And in, until the end of the World Series, there won't be much going on. So we're kind of in a holding pattern waiting for the World Series to end. That's when teams can start uh, making uh, making moves again. And uh, the winter meetings will be very shortly thereafter. And uh, Reds Fest will be coming. Uh, lots, of the, lots of things going on in the Reds offseason, a, a key offseason, as we've discussed before here. Reds have a lot of uh, very important decisions to make, and, and new general manager Dick Williams is it's on the clock now, and it's going to be interesting to see how he approaches this offseason. But since there's not a whole lot going on this week, I thought it might be a, a good time to do something I've been meaning to do actually for a while and play a couple of our features from the recent past. You know, we've been going, this is episode, I think, 152, I guess, of Red Leg Nation Radio. Our first episode was back in 2007. So, you know, we're going on a decade of podcasts here uh, uh, off and on. And we've had uh, quite a few great interviews that I've enjoyed and, and, and good features. One of the things that I love, one of my favorite things about Red Leg Nation during the time that we've been running the uh, the website at redlegnation.com and is uh, the fact that we once uh, grabbed some audio and we talked about it a couple weeks ago. Not sure where the audio, how we even got our hands on. I can't even remember that far back. But it was back when Adam Dunn played for the Reds, and um, you know how the Reds used to do the banana phone. Marty Brenneman on the radio broadcast. He started it back with Joe Nuxall, but they for years it was sort of a legend of the Reds broadcast booth. The banana phone during rain delays. They pull out the banana phone and take phone calls. It's so sad that the banana phone is no longer with us because, uh, I don't know, growing up and, and listening to the Reds on the radio, it's always a, it was always fun, always a, something crazy going on. And probably the craziest moment was the segment we're going to play you right after I finish talking here. And that's when <laughs> Adam Dunn, uh, everyone's favorite Red, actually called the banana phone and, and called himself Adam from Milwaukee. And it is just about, uh, it's only a minute and a half, two minutes, but it is laugh out loud funny. And it sort of made uh, national news in some ways at the time as a sort of fun story. So it's, listen to that. If you've not heard it yet, you're going to enjoy it. Just try to think about Adam Dunn sitting down in the Reds clubhouse during a rain delay and uh, calling up to uh, to Marty Brenneman. It's, it's really funny. After that, we're going to have a uh, an interview that Bill Lack did, my frequent co-host here at Red Leg Nation Radio, with Reds Hall of Famer Jim Maloney. And I loved this. He's sort of an unsung guy because he was really a, a stud pitcher for the Reds. But his career kind of came to a halt there right at the beginning of the Big Red Machine. And so maybe he sometimes doesn't get his due because right after he was the man in Cincinnati was the Big Red Machine. And those guys take up all the oxygen in the room often. And so... It's a really uh, wide-ranging interview with Jim Maloney about his career, and Bill does a great job with those. And really, we appreciate This was a couple years ago. We really appreciate Jim Maloney spending a couple moments with us. If you're looking for a somewhat more substantive analysis of the Reds' offseason plans, uh, what they're going to need to do to return to the playoffs next year, go listen to our most recent episode where me and uh, where Jason Linden joined me, and we talked about uh, all manner of things. But 
for this week, really, I hope you're going to enjoy these two. These are about two of my favorite moments from uh, Red Leg Nation Radio's past. Adam from Milwaukee and uh, Bill Lack's interview with Jim Maloney. Enjoy. Uh, we now will go uh, to a good friend of ours from Milwaukee who is standing by on the phone. Hello. Hello. Hello, Marty. Yes. Marty. Yes. Marty, this is Adam. Marty. Yes. This is Adam from Milwaukee. Hey, Adam. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Do you think Scott Hatterberg is a good player? Yeah. Hello. Marty? Marty. Yes, Adam, from Milwaukee. Do you think Scott Hatterberg is a good player? Do you think he's a good player? I think he's overrated. Uh, who would you rather see play at first base? I can tell you're a big fan. I am. Um, maybe uh, Luke Stowe. That would, you think that would be an improvement? I think so. He's a little young. He's a little bit young, isn't he, Adam? Uh... No. <laughs> Is it still raining in Cincinnati? It's just about stopped, Adam. Do you have your shirt on? Uh, last I checked, I did, yes. Why? Just curious. Uh, listen, I'm going to let you go now because I know that you're going to get your game face on because we're getting ready to go back on the radio shortly, and you'll be listening to every word. I love it. Have a good one, bro. Thanks, Adam. Nice talking with you. All right. Adam from Milwaukee. Yeah. Welcome to a huge episode of Red Leg Nation Radio. As we're very privileged today to be joined one of the by one of the Reds' all-time greats. In a Reds career that spanned from 1961 to 1970, he holds the Reds' record in strikeouts, strike, strikeouts per nine innings. He's second in career shutouts, second in hits per nine innings. Has three of the top ten strikeout seasons for the Reds, and many other top ten uh, Reds records. And believe me, this isn't a complete list of his accomplishments by any stretch of the imagination. During the 60s, he was mentioned in the same breath with Sandy Koufax, Bob Gibson, Don Drysdale, and Juan Marichal. We are absolutely thrilled today to be joined by Mr. Jim Maloney. Jim, thanks very, very much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, girls. Nice that I can help out a little bit. It'll be great. Let's jump right into this thing. You, you grew up in Fresno, California, and you were a three-star athlete at Fresno High School. Uh, but your big sport was probably baseball, I'm assuming. You played uh, shortstop in high school and, and were scouted by every major league team. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in fact, uh, my senior year, I was I stayed out of uh, football. I was a quarterback because uh, I knew uh, the scouts were telling me, you know, that if you want to get out of, have a chance to go to baseball and not be get injured playing football and uh, don't take that chance, uh, because I was, you know, I was going to be in like a high draft pick. They didn't have a, the draft in those days, but there was a lot of scouts uh, looking. They came to all our games. We had uh, Dick Ellsworth was a pitcher on the ball club. Uh, he spent about 12 years in the major leagues. Uh, Pat Corrales was our catcher. He's still in baseball after 50 years. Uh, he's an executive, I think, with the Dodgers now. But... Uh, so we had a terrific uh, high school baseball team. So that's what I did. I stayed out of football, and then uh, my senior year, uh, we all we had a great ball club. I don't, I can't remember what we did there. They said we had the 
best team in the state at that time, but I don't even know if they kept those kind of records or not. But uh, we had a good team for high school, and uh, we had about five guys signed pro contracts off that team, two others that were pitchers that hurt their arms in the minor leagues and, and uh, had to drop out. And then there was uh, Pat Corrales and myself and Dick Ellsworth. And then two years later, uh, Dick Selma, who pitched in the major leagues, mm-hmm. came through and uh, signed. But he was he was a couple years behind us. I, I read that you really only pitched two games in high school. You, you struck out 16 in a seven-inning game and 25 in a nine-inning game. How'd you end up as a pitcher? Well, uh, I didn't pitch because we had two other guys pitching all the Dick Ellsworth. And I, so I was playing shortstop, and uh, I could hit a little bit. I was a decent hitter. And uh, so I, I, that, was, that was my deal. When we got an American Legion ball, we played three games on the weekends. And uh, uh, so, you know, I get to pitch a little bit, maybe uh, a couple of times. But I, I started one game in Visalia, and the lights were sort of bad. And I, I hit the first guy up, and uh, I don't think there was any of them want to stand in there. It was just the <laughs> night they put all those guys out. But, uh, uh, you know, it was just one of those deals. But when I, when I graduated from high school, my dad, you know, there were no agents in those days. And uh, so my dad was a successful uh, used car dealer, been in business for many years there in Fresno. And uh, he was sort of my agent, you might say. And the night I graduated from high school, um, there were 16 major league teams at that in that time. It was eight in the National and eight in the American League. And uh, the night I got out of high school, or the day afternoon I graduated, uh, we talked to every major league club that wanted to sign me right out of high school, and uh, they were offering me money like uh, uh, $40,000 uh, bonus to sign a contract, and half of them wanted me as an infielder or, you know, as a, as, as a hitter. And um, so my dad said I was worth more money and uh, turned all that stuff down. If my dad wasn't there, I would have signed, I would have signed for a Hershey bar. You know, just because you uh, wanted to play, huh? That's it. And uh, he said, no, he said, I was worth more money and then I was going to go on to school. And so I had all these offers at college. And my dad was real good friends with the California, uh, University of California, Berkeley coach. And um, so anyway, that's where I ended up going. I went up there and uh, I uh, was a fish out of water. I had a hard time adjusting uh uh, you know, I was away from home, not far, but, I mean, I was away from home. And uh, so I only lasted one semester there. And uh, But I, I uh, came back in mid-semester to Fresno and got into Fresno City College. And uh, that we had a great ball club. In fact, they still have great ball clubs at Fresno City College. It's a great uh, junior college school. And... Uh, so that's where then Bobby Maddox, who was a Cincinnati Red Scout at that time, one of the top scouts on the West Coast, uh, he signed like guys like Frank Robinson and Veda Pinson. Then there was a guy named Jesse Gonder, who was a catcher, and uh, Mel Queen. And uh, there was quite a few uh, ballplayers that, that, that he signed out of that uh, Bay Area. I, I live in the Central Valley, or I was living it, still do, but... Uh, 
So he snuck in the fastball, nobody knew anything about it, and he got a hold of my dad, and he says, we want to sign the boy, and uh, so we all got together at a hotel where he was staying, downtown Fresno, and uh, anyway, they come up with a contract and offer me a major league contract, guaranteed for three years, and uh, the minimum salary in those days was $10,000, and I mean, I'm sorry, it was $7,000, and the Reds were offering me $10,000, guaranteed for three years, and... Uh, right around $65,000 uh, bonus. So uh, as my dad, look, you know, turned out, he was right. You know, I got a little more money. But anyway, uh, my dad was also very good friends with George Bryson. And at that time, he was the uh, television uh, color guy for the Reds. And uh, he, uh, so anyway, he was talking to my dad, and then they wanted, you know, they wanted me there. And that's how I, I ended up with uh, Cincinnati. So... Uh, that was a good choice for me. I enjoyed all my years there in Cincinnati and uh, great city and great people. And, uh, uh, you know, I just, I'm glad I was able to stay 10 years in one place. Okay, let, let, let's back up to the beginning of your career here. You spent 59 and part of 1960 in the minors, but you made your major, major, major league debut on July 27, 1960. What do you remember about that day? Well, I remember I got beat. Yes, you uh, did. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I started against the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers in uh, the Coliseum. They were playing, uh, the Dodgers played in the uh, L.A. Coliseum, a football field, and they made it into a baseball field. They had yeah. a little short left field fence that, you know, was only like 290 feet. They put a high screen on it, and... Uh, the guy could hit a line drive that would go out any ballpark, would hit the screen and hold the guy to a single. And, uh, but anyway, I pitched against Don Drysdale, and I, I didn't do uh, bad. I, I gave up a couple of runs, and I ended up, uh, he shut us out, and I ended up getting beat, I believe, two to nothing. Yep, you only actually only gave up one run, Jim. Oh, I did. I didn't realize that. We got beat two to nothing. Yes, you did. That team yeah. had some pretty good players. I mean, Duke Snyder was still a pretty good ball player. They had Frank Howard. Maury Wills was on that team. Yeah, they had, uh, and then they got this Wally Moon, which was sort of at the end of his career, but he was a left-hand hitter, and he learned to hit the ball inside out, and he, and he hit those little fly balls into the left field bleachers, it was all, uh, and they called it the moon shot, yep. so he had that, so he was, uh, yeah, they had big Frank Howard, he was just getting started, but uh, he he was uh, he was a fairly easy out for me, he swung at uh, bad pitches and chased curveballs in the dirt, but. But it's, when, it's, he learned, when he learned the strike zone, uh, he became a real good hitter. Well, you know, and it's you know, it's one thing to have your major league debut, and it's another thing to have your major league debut against the the defending world champions and Don Drysdale. Yeah, yeah was, uh, <laughs> and then I had all my folks, my my parents came down, and uh, you know, and there was so there was a lot of uh, things going on, and uh, but you know, I went out there, and uh, Ed Bailey was our catcher, and. Uh, you know, he, uh, I was having a hard time seeing the signs that were the lights were sort of, uh, they weren't really, my eyes weren't very good. You know, they were okay, but in that particular ballpark, there was a lot of shadows in between his legs there when he was giving me signs, and I crossed him up a couple of times, and, uh, and he, we changed the signs, and we, <laughs> the signs were very, very simple. It was a fastball. He put his left uh, uh, glove over his uh, left leg when he gave the sign, it was a curve, he'd hold the glove right on, t on top of his knees, you know, so I mean, anybody in the ballpark would figure that out, so, 
anyway, uh, you know, so that's what I remember. I remember that, uh, you know, that was a long time ago. So, Jim, you were 0-3 when you finally got your first big league win on, on August the 15th against the Braves across the field. But to be fair, you lost to Drysdale and Sandy Koufax in two of those three games, and your team didn't score a run in either one of those. But the Braves had some pretty good hitters, too. A guy named Aaron, a guy named Eddie Matthews. And you held them to a one for eight against you that day and struck out each of them once. And you only gave up three runs that day. And then later that year, you threw a four-hit shutout against the Phillies on September the 24th at Crosley. You Not know, that, the uh, Milwaukee, uh, all the ball clubs that I pitched uh, baseball against, I mean, a lot of ball during the, my career, uh, Milwaukee had very good uh, hitters, you know, with Aaron and Matthews and... Uh, and uh, they had uh, Frank Bowling, I think, was a second baseman, and they had Minky was there, and uh, uh, there was some other, uh, you know, they were they scored a lot of runs. But anyway, I, over my whole career, I think I I did, uh, you know, they were the they were a club that I had the best luck with. I mean, it just uh, I go out there and uh, somehow I just feel like I was in the zone, you know, like they say today. But uh, that's the way it was. So there were some real good hitters. Uh, you know, the years I came, you know, through and played uh, those ten years, you know, I get asked all the time, you know, you know, all that money situation going on today, and uh, and I, I'm really glad that I came along when I did. I got to pitch against some of the greatest ball players that uh, ever put on a uniform, and I had some great, great uh, teammates over the ten years there in Cincinnati. That's. I want to ask you about one of those right now. Most of the fans or people that listen to our podcast here know Joe Nuxall as a broadcaster. Tell us about Joe Nuxall as a player and as a teammate. Well, Nuxall was, uh, when I came up in 60, he was uh, with us. And then in 61, uh, I was there the whole year. And that was the only year they traded Nuxall, I think, to Kansas City. And we won the pennant that year. Yep. And then Nuxall came back to the... Uh, uh, to the uh, Reds, and then he finished out his career there and went up from the field to the booth, the radio booth. But I'll never forget Maxwell. He had a temper, and uh, early on, I, I don't know what year it was. It was probably the first year at Candlestick Park, maybe 62 or somewhere in there. And Nux, he was he was pitching. He was going along, blowing these guys down. And uh, he got to the ninth inning, and I think he had a... Uh, one one to nothing shutout, and uh, he got to the ninth inning, and a guy came up and hit a little uh, two hopper or something back to him, and kicked off his glove. Went over, to, he went, so he went over a couple steps and sort of slipped, and he made a bad throw to first base for an error. And uh, McCovey was the next hitter up, and and uh, he hit it in the bay. So that's all, you know. And he, as I said, Knoxall had a little temper, and uh, they were just starting to put in the clubhouses, they were just starting to put food out. You know, they had guys that were, some clubhouse guys were better than other guys, but the clubhouse guy at Candlestick, the visitor's clubhouse guy, was a guy named Murphy, and he's still, he's uh, still the clubhouse guy for the home team. He's been there for years. But anyway, he was just a young guy, and he was just starting out, he had these hamburgers and hot dogs and all that stuff laid out there, and boy, that's all he ran off the field and went in the clubhouse, and I'm telling you, there was mustard and hot bags <laughs> and everything else all over the clubhouse. It was flying, huh? <laughs> yeah, and uh, it, it cost him quite a few dollars to get those things straightened out, but, you know, actually, he, he, uh, 
learned to control his temper, and he's, he became a, a real uh, nice pitcher, you know, in the latter part of his career. You know, he was a, uh, uh, you know, if he got hit a little bit, he, he, he didn't blow up, you know. He was staying within his, uh, his means, which was good, you know, good for him. Moving on, moving on, Jim, into, into 61 now. I, I read an article that said you developed uh, arm and shoulder problems in, in spring training that year that plagued you off and on for the rest of your career. And even with that, if I, as I looked through your, your record and, and I looked at every start you made every season in your career, you didn't seem to miss many, many starts. Um, what do you think is the major difference now between the way pitchers are handled now and when they were handled the way when you pitched? Well, we, you know, uh, there was no pitch count. I mean, we did. We kept track of the pitchers. The uh, the starting pitcher was going to pitch the next night. You know, he took care of. He, he uh, we had these little sheets where we mark where the balls were hit and how many pitches and what kind of pitches the guy hit. So, you know, you sort of stayed in the game and watched the guys you were going to pitch. And uh, so, you know, like myself, I pitched nine innings. Uh, you know, and I threw hard, so there was a lot of foul balls. There were strikeouts. So if I if I threw uh, 115 130 pitches, that was pretty good uh, night for me for nine innings. And uh, you know I I I started you know that wear and tear on your shoulders. You know that you know I don't think uh, God had put that thing on your shoulder to throw that white rat around. You know it just. Uh, it's an awkward motion to throw overhand with a, you know, if you're a softball pitcher, you can, you can just throw one game after another underhand. But when you start to come over the top, and uh, it, you know, it puts a lot of wear and tear on your shoulder. And uh, I used to get it in the back part of my shoulder, and they said that was better back there than if you got it on the front part of your shoulder. I never had any problems in the front, but we had a doctor named George Ballou, and, uh, you know, I... He gave me a cortisone shot, and if he hit the spot, you know, I'd miss one start, and I'd, it was like getting an oil change. You know, I'm just ready to go, you know. And, uh, you know, that's that's what happened. That's what I did. I, I probably took a couple of cortisone shots every year, and then one time I had problems out in Los Angeles, and the ball club sent me to Dr. Curlin out there, and he gave me a cortisone shot. But, you know, that's, you know, there was, uh, that's what they did in those days, you know. You, uh, you know, there's a lot of times you go out there and pitch, and you you know you're not right, and you're sore, and uh, but you know you just try to get them out the best way you can. You don't say anything about it. That 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 team in '61 was called the Ragamuffin Reds, and, and you guys went to the World Series. You only pitched in one game in the World Series, but tell us about the experience of being in a World Series. You know, that one game I pitched in there, if, you know, if you happen to go to the refrigerator and get a sandwich and a soda, you, you had a good chance of missing me. <laughs> because uh, I was the last game, and George uh, started the game, and then he gave up a bunch of runs, and then uh, I was the second guy as a long reliever, so I got my chance. And, and uh, when I got in there, uh, crossed the field, uh, I couldn't even see straight. I was so nervous, uh, and I was so hyper, and, uh, you know, it was just a whole different deal than just a regular, you know, a regular league game. You know, to be in a World Series, it, you know, I seen a lot of, in school when I was in junior high, and in grade school we saw these World Series games, and, you know, as a kid, that's you'd always dream about that, and uh, 
So I, I didn't handle it very well. I was uh, overmatched in my mind, and uh, the way I reacted, uh, I just, uh, I would just close my eyes and talk as hard as I could, and they were, I think they got a few hits off me, and uh, and uh, so that was it. I didn't, uh, I think I got one guy out, and, and uh, I was out of there. In 60 so it's, a big, it's a big thrill to, to uh, play in a World Series. That's what... Uh, that's you know that's one of your big goals uh, you know as a team to go all the way to uh, you know get to a World Series you know and there were no playoffs in those days so right. you had to you had to win your division you know then you went to the World Series. Yeah. You st you started the '62 season in the minors and got called up in June. From there you went nine and seven with a 351 ERA, which was well below league average, which is a pattern that you would keep basically for the rest of your career until the Achilles injury. And, and even that season, your last 25 innings, you only allowed one earned run and struck out 24. Two other Reds all-time greats were already on the Reds when you came up. Tell us a little bit about playing with Beta Pinson and Frank Robinson. Well, I rocked next to Pinson, and on the other side of him was Frank, and then there was a corner there. That was Frank ended the corner down it. And uh, so I rocked next to him, and, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> Robinson was a, uh, you know, he was a great hitter. He was a great player. Um, he, uh, you know, he's a Hall of Famer, and uh, that's the way he played. He played hard every day. He was uh, uh, a guy that uh, if you needed to uh, have a base stolen, he, he, he could run like a deer, but he would never just go on and get on first base and start stealing. He would only take that base if you were going to have a chance to win the ball game. So he got he never got thrown out very much. Veda Pinson was a uh, real quiet-minded uh, uh, fellow, and uh, he uh, didn't say too much. He always shined his own shoes, you know, his own spikes every day, and uh, he just loved to play. He just went out there to center field. He was a great center fielder, and he was a great uh, hitter, and he, he the way he ran... He had good speed, but he ran on his heels, and he looked like a glider-type runner, not a guy that's just pounding the ground with his legs. He would sort of like fly along the line a little bit. And uh, uh, <clears throat> so it was real, you know, as I said, I had great teammates over the 10 years I was there, and, uh, you know, a lot of wonderful memories. But, you know, Frank Robinson, they, they traded. Uh, that's probably one of the worst trades that Cincinnati ever did uh, when, they, when they traded him to... Uh, Baltimore for uh, Bill Pappas and uh, Dick Simpson, I think. It yeah, was. I think it was. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get the, up there. Is is does Jim Maloney think Veda Pinson's a home Hall of Famer? Well, he he certainly needs to be considered. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know. He he's uh, should be on that list. I you know I don't know if he is or not. But uh, you know, I, if you don't get enough votes there for. Some, some years or yeah. some you drop off, you know, and, uh, but for, you know, he passed away some time ago, so yeah, I, I don't know if there's a veterans committee or how they do that, but, uh, you know, it's, he, he was a great ball player, and, they, and he's, you know, Cincinnati, in those days, uh, great ball players sort of flew under the radar, because yeah. the, the media and stuff wasn't, we just had, you know, two beat writers, and, uh, that traveled with us, and, uh, you know, they didn't have all that ESPN and stuff going on today like they do. So, and <clears throat> that was, and that was, and I, I really enjoyed that part of it, you know. I, I really wouldn't have played, I uh, liked to play in New York uh, 
all the uh, fast, you know, lines, fast lane stuff that goes, yeah. you know, in everybody's, uh, you know, big city, and you know, you got to go miles to get out to the country to get in to see see grass. And uh, so when I came to Cincinnati, it, you know, it, it's, it's wonderful. It's under the radar. And, you know, you could go into a restaurant and have dinner, and uh, nobody's going to bother you. And if they do, they're very courteous about it. And uh, so, anyway, that's uh, you know, I think being in Cincinnati uh, that probably hurt Pinson a little bit. Hey Jim, much is made of young guys, especially ones that threw as hard as you did, going from being a thrower to a pitcher. Can you tell us about that transition for you? Was there a time when like the light bulb went on, or was it a gradual process? And uh, when do you yeah. when do you really feel like you figured out how to pitch? Well, I, I, I when I first came up in the, that first uh, year, uh, I was really just a thrower, and uh, then I uh, came back in '62, and I, I just like you said, I won nine and I lost seven, and had uh, decent earned run average. Then '63, I, I took off from '62, yep. and I had a big year of '63, but. I my control my control got better even though I walked guys I had I don't think I led I led the year uh, you know a couple of times in uh, wild pitches and uh, you know sometimes that being a little wild uh, will help you you know especially if you're a hard thrower now if you don't, you know if you're a finesse type pitcher that's not good so you know I I, I threw everything I didn't know anything but 100 percent on every pitch you know uh, Jim Turner. He finally, I had a hard time picking up a changeup because I just couldn't slow, I slowed my motion down and I'd tip it off. So he, he said, just throw a cur uh, change off your curve. So I did that to big hitters that take big swings. And uh, yeah, man, I got a lot of guys out on that pitch and that, that helped me out. But when I threw, when I pitched, you know, it was a hard fastball and a hard curve. I mean, that's, that's what it was. Okay. As you said, 63 was a breakout season for you. You became one of the premier pitchers in baseball. You won the Ernie Lombardi Award as the Reds MVP. You went 23-7 and with a 277 ERA when the league average was 4.3. You struck out over 10 guys in 11 of your 33 starts. You, hit through, you, you struck out 265 guys, number two all-time for the Reds. And during the course of the season, you beat Bob Gibson, Don Drysdale, and Juan Marichal. And you were 19th in the MVP voting, but Sandy Koufax had a pretty good year that year, 25 and 5 with a 1.88 ERA, and won the Cy Young. But you also threw 250 innings at age 23. Do, do you think that that was? I mean, it had to have been bad on your you know, shoulder to throw that many innings that young. Well, if you go in today's market, that, that's that's very true. But uh, you know, when we went to spring training, we tried, we worked. Uh, you know, our workouts were, we did a lot of running. I mean, it was constant running in the outfield, and we did a lot of uh, what they call pickups, which uh, involved a lot with your back, bending over, going to pick a ball up, and the guy would throw out to your left, to your right. And you would get out of spring training uh, where you were ready for the season uh, when you could run line to line 20 times uh, and then go over and pick up and, and do 500 pickups. And, uh, you know, so you, you got in shape to pitch, you know, that, that, you know, nine innings. That's what you were, you yeah. know, you were getting in shape for. Now, I don't know in today's market, these pitchers, uh, 
you know, they take them out in six innings, you know, I, uh, you know pitch count, this and that. And so I, I don't know if they're getting in shape just to pitch six innings or, or what, but, uh, you know, that's it seems like that's what, it, you know, they're all programmed to do that. You know, if you get a 100 pitches or 105 pitches, you know, well, you know, hey, I'm, get me out of here, you know, I'm out of here. Couple of a couple of your games that the Bear talking about a little bit that season, and, and on July the twenty third, at up at pitching against the Cubs, he threw a one hitter and struck out thirteen. And I looked at the box score and I go, "Wow!" You see, Lou Brock, Billy Williams, Ernie Banks, Ron Sando, four Hall of Famers. You had them zero for thirteen. Do you know who you gave up the hit to? Uh, His name was Ellis Burton. Ellis Burton. Center fielder, is that who that was? I, I, he was an outfielder. I can't remember whether he was a center fielder or not. Uh, yeah, and I think I, I think it gave up the hit in the first inning or something like that. Oh, wow. But, uh, yeah, that, uh, you know, the Cubs, they couldn't, they had a hard time winning ball games and they had great ball players. So I don't know what the, you know, what the deal was. Maybe their pitching wasn't, uh, you know, they had Fergie Jenkins over there as a Hall of Famer. And, yep. uh, you know, they, but they just couldn't, uh, they were trying different things. They had roving coaches and roving managers, and they tried everything. But uh, because Ron Santo and Billy Williams and Ernie Banks, that's that's a pretty good uh, trio right there. Yep, and they had Lou Brock. Still, Lou Brock was still in Chicago at that time. So At that time, then he yeah. got traded over to St. Louis, yep. yeah. That was another bad trade. Yeah. At that time, uh, Jim, you were playing for legendary Reds manager Fred Hutchinson. Tell us a little about Fred. Tell us a little bit about Fred Hutchinson. Fred Hutchinson was a uh, uh, great manager. Uh, he was a guy that was uh, uh, tough. Uh, he wouldn't think five minutes of chewing you out, chewing the whole ball club out, and uh, you know when you were you needed it. I mean uh, that you needed somebody to kick you in the pants and. Uh, Tell you, you know what's going on here, you know, and uh, he uh, he didn't say too much, but when he when he talked, everybody listened. He, the respect of everyone, but what it, what it was, he could come out and chew you out, and just call you everything in the book, and then after he got through, that was it. You know, he never never held a grudge, or never had resentment against you. I mean, it was just. Like he went up and erased the board and started over again. Yeah. The other guy I wanted to ask you about that was on that '63 team. He had a young second baseman come up, win Rookie of the Year that year, and everybody knows the the big red machine, Pete Rose. Tell us about the young rookie, Pete Rose. Yeah, well, Pete was uh, came up in '63, and he came up as a second baseman, and uh, he started that when he got. You know, when he when he uh, took a ball four, he'd start out of the box like a guy running all the way out, uh, you know, getting down to first base in about four seconds. And the pitchers, you know, they started calling him a hot dog and put some mustard on that hot dog and this and that. And, uh, you know, he got hit a few times because, he, you know, they thought it was showing up the pitcher and this that. And after, after a while, he started having to, putting those hits together and having those years, 200 hits every year. And uh, he, that's the way he did it. That's the way Pete Rose played. That guy was a fantastic hitter, and right-handed or left-handed. But he, uh, his arm, you know, is he he hit, so they found a place for him. Yeah. 
his arm was just mediocre and his speed was okay, but, you know, he started that head first slide and all these guys today, you know, they slide head first and they, you know, they have a lot of them break their hands and, and they get stepped on and then, you know, it's a dangerous slide. But Pete, he, he'd go and he'd take off and he'd be like playing for like Superman, hit that dirt, boom. He's, that's the way he played. You know, he got out of the game. His, his uniform was always just like brown or, uh, just like the dirt or the grass, yep. he was always in it. So, but I, I'm glad I played with Pete. Uh, you know, he was. Uh, he, I'm sure he helped me win a lot of ball games, and uh, he helped uh, Cincinnati win a lot of ball games. So, so we're getting we're getting to the point now. Where we're going to talk about a heck of a pennant race in '64. Now, personally for you, '64, you went 15 and 10, but you didn't get a whole lot of run support. Your 10 losses, you, you only they only scored 13 runs for you, and you're but your ERA went down again. But you were twelve and three in the last three months of the season. You, uh, yeah. you. Uh, I don't remember. Uh, uh, I don't, you know, how that came out. Uh, but I made a, a what well, they call it a salary drive in those days. But uh, we went down to the last game of the season, and and uh, they called. We were playing Philadelphia, and it could have been a three-way tie, and we had a chance. We came off the road. We came off the road. We had four games to play, I think, in the last week or four. We had a couple off days in there. And the first two games were against Pittsburgh, and then we played the Phillies. There was an off day, and we played the Phillies Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And all we had to do, Bill, was, I think, just win one game, and we were going to win that pennant. And, uh, you know, we uh, the Reds were going to be another, you know, nationally pennant uh uh, winners, champions, and uh, came off there, and I pitched the first game against uh, Bob Veal. And I don't know, you know, it's such a long time ago, but I, I think that Bob Veal and I set a record for striking people out, the combination of guys. You might want to look that up. I don't know. But anyway, I got beat. It went The game went 11 innings or something, and I think I got beat 2-1 to one or something like that. Game so went... Walked, you, the All game right. went. The game went sixteen. You threw eleven innings and didn't give up a run and struck out thirteen. You gave up three hits and the Reds got beat one to nothing in sixteen. Oh, what about Bob Veal? Did he say what he did? I didn't. I, I don't have there? that. I don't have that in front of me, Jim. Hey, but anyway, yeah. That's why I pitched eleven innings and couldn't get a run. We had a guy on guys on third base about four times with one out and couldn't get him in. I mean, it was just a real. Uh, Disappointing game for the whole team. And then uh, the next night, Billy McCool pitched, and I think he got shut out two to nothing or something like that. So we're all in two, and then we go into uh, I think I don't know. Uh, we played Philadelphia. I don't know how many games we played, but Philadelphia was like Friday night. Jim O'Toole pitched. He had him going, and then uh, I don't know. There was a pop up uh, behind shortstop, and Leo. Uh, Kicked the ball, and uh, he ended up getting beat. But we never run. We, we never won a game. So the last day of the season, it could have been a four-way, three-way tie, St. Louis and Philadelphia and us. And uh, as it turned out, uh, they called me. They called Hutch called me in his office, and I was scheduled to pitch. So I was my that was my turn to pitch, and uh, I had always had a little tough time with Philadelphia over the years. You know, and uh, or up to that point, 
But to be honest with you, all he had to do was throw his glove out there. And uh, so we, we decided, you know, to go with Satoris. And if we won the game, that I would start the first game against uh, St. Louis against Gibson. So anyway, we never got that far. But he shut us out 10 to nothing, and we were headed, I was headed for California. Yeah. So then we're going in. So after that big disappointment, we go into '65, and uh, and you had what what maybe was your best season. You won 20 for the second time. Your ERA went down again. The only time in your career you made the All Star team, and and you and you kind of you threw two no hitters that year. Um, it, it's funny because the article I read said you had a disastrous spring training where you gave up 28 earned runs and 40 hits and 30 innings. You took your first start off to work on mechanics, and then you threw a one hitter in your first in your first in your first start against Milwaukee. I was terrible in spring training. They couldn't go by my record. Spring training, they do that after you know. I, I was a I was a leader of uh, going to class, uh, B games. You know, they 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 so you need to go to play these guys over here in the morning at ten o'clock. So I did that for a long time, and then. When my arm it would get sore, so I couldn't, you know, I'd have a hard time. I just throw the ball in there, just you know, and they they hit me all over the place, and so I give up a lot of runs. And then when I get over my soreness and stuff, and uh, I started the season that year, and just like you said, I pitched a one hitter, so I was on my way. Yeah, the the three games I want to talk about a little bit about in '65 is that the first game you threw the one hitter, and 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 again you said you've always pitched well against the Braves, and that was against the Braves. Uh, the, got, the one guy that got the hit was a future red, Dennis Mankey. Right. Uh, he, hit me, he hit me pretty good, Mankey did. Did he? The, yeah, uh, over the years, he, uh, he couldn't hit a slider to save himself. You know, that Sam Wilson strike him out three or four times, and he hit sliders, and I never threw a slider. I just threw a fastball and a curve. And uh, I get behind him, and I try to, you know, get the ball by him. He was a real good fastball hitter, and he's a low fastball hitter. And I'd get you know, I make a mistake, he get a hit off me. I make a mistake, he get a hit off me. So that's, he hit me pretty good, Mickey did. On on June the 14th that year, you were playing the Mets, and you threw, you had a no-hitter through 10 innings, and in the 11th inning, a guy named Johnny Lewis hit a home run off of you. And baseball no longer calls that a no-hitter, but that's crazy. That's a no-hitter. Well, they gave me credit for it for quite a while. Uh, you know, I had three no-hitters, they, they, you know, uh, at that particular time. Right. And, uh, but I went along, and Bob Feller was the only other guy that had thrown three hitters, and Kovac said four. At that time, you know, Nolan right. Ryan, I think he right. ended up with seven or something like that. But uh, there's only one other guy that threw three, and that's Bob Feller. And I played golf with him in golf tournaments, uh, Later on, and he, boy, he just grinded about. I said, "You didn't throw, you know, throw no hitter." He says, uh, "I said, I tell him, I said, Bob, I don't have anything to do with it." I said, "So, they, <laughs> so he was sort of grumpy about it." And uh, anyway, uh, I don't know when it was. It was the year of Maris. They put an asterisk by his name, hitting 61 home runs in uh, 162 games. I think it was yeah. 154 game schedule. Yeah. So then they took a bunch of no-hitters off the books. There were guys that pitched no-hitters for five innings that Reigns got. They took them off the books. And uh, uh, so anyway, I, I had thrown two, or I ended up throwing two more, 
and they, they took that one off the book. So it brought me back into a group where there's quite a few guys, but and I'm sure Bob Farrell was happy. <laughs> <laughs> Later that year in August, up and up again, up against up again Wrigley, you threw a ten inning no hitter where you struck out twelve in the first game of a double header and Leo Cardenas kind of saved you that day by hitting a home run for you in the top of the tenth. Yeah, that uh you know, I, two months before that, just like you say, I threw 10 innings and I had no, you know, you're sitting on the bench and there, there are no hits up there and uh, zero to zero and you, you know you still got to keep pitching and then I end up, the guy, Lewis hit a home run off me and I got beat one to nothing and two months later, I'm sitting on the bench at Wrigley Field and I'm in the same position. I, it's, I pitched nine innings, I'm sitting down and it's no hits, comes out no hits, Score zero zero, and I still have to pitch. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this is a tough league, you know. I just, you know, <laughs> this is a real tough league here. And uh, so, as it turned out, I was on on the on deck circle in the uh, top of the tenth inning, and uh, Leo was the eighth hitter, I was the ninth. And he hit a ball, and the ball curved, and it I'll be darned if it didn't hit the foul pole down the left field line. So we got to run, and then I. Got him out in the bottom of the tenth. So within two two months there, I've thrown two ten inning no hitters. I won one and I lost one. Wow! After that season, as as, the, as you alluded to earlier, was the trade of Frank Robinson to Baltimore. Tell us about the players' reaction when they heard about this. And did did anybody that played with Frank Robinson believe he was an old thirty year old player? No, heck no. There was uh, you know, I I just think that. Uh, you know, Bill Dillett was the owner of the ball club, and I know at that time he was going to uh, unload the ball club. You know, I think he was just trying to cut a salary. I don't know what Frank made it. But, you know, it was no big contracts like they have today, but maybe he might have been making sixty-five, seventy thousand $70,000. I don't know, but that would be probably be. And uh, that was quite a bit of money in those days. And, uh, you know, DeWitt said in the paper that he was an old 30 or somebody did. I don't know what it yeah. was. And, uh, yeah, he was real old, all right. He, yeah, he won the triple there. crown the next year. <laughs> yeah, tore off the American League, uh, you know, MVP and everything else. So, but, uh, you know, we got Noah Pappas, and he was, uh, he was okay. He was, uh, you know, he was, he did, his, he did okay. He won quite a few ball games, but, uh, you know, there was, and uh, Dick Simpson was nothing, and I don't know who the, there was another guy involved, but, uh, <clears throat> it wasn't, you know, no way it was a bad trade, period. In 66, Jim, I, I, I've read a number, we're talking about 66, I've read a number of places that said you had contract issues with the Reds a number of times. I even read a quote that you said at one point, that if the Reds won't pay me what I think I'm worth, let them trade me to a club that will. And back then, I mean, they, they really, you got salaries were kept secret. And, and so how tough was it to negotiate your contract every year? Because... My only reference to this is reading Ball Four by Jim Bouton. And he said some teams were known to be more generous with their players than others. He talked about the Red Sox supposedly being one of the more generous. How was it dealing with the Reds over money? Terrible. Absolutely terrible. It, uh, you know, they, the, the guy at uh, Minnesota, Calvin Griffith, and uh, Bill DeWitt, they were probably two of the toughest uh, guys to deal with. I mean, uh, and that was just the way they were. I mean, they were baseball guys, but they, you know, they they tell you that you had to deal for yourself. You know, there was no agents or right. anything like that. And uh, you go in there, and I'm just a green head uh, buying your kid from Fresno, and you're, 
you know, he's a lawyer and sharp businessman, and, uh, you know, and they're telling you things that, you know, we don't have the money because we don't draw the people, and, uh, you know, you don't know whether they're telling you the truth or not. But I had contract problems every year. Every every year that I, that I played after my... After the 23 and 7, after 1963, I had contract problems every year. One year, 1965, I didn't get to spring training. I was the last guy to sign. There was Drysdale and Colfax were holding out in a, uh, a deal in Los Angeles for uh, the two of them went as a package. And uh, then Marichal was holding out with the Giants. They ended up signing both those guys, and Marichal signed. And I was, March 21st, I was, my dad had a sort of a uh, four-acre uh, home on, on four acres. He liked to grow things. My dad had gardens and all that stuff. And uh, I remember March 21st, I was out there helping him put in tomato plants. We were capping tomato plants. And, uh, you know, spring training was, <laughs> you know, they broke spring training around April the 4th or 5th. And uh, so you can see, I didn't have but about two and a half weeks of spring training. I finally... I finally signed that. Um, but anyway, in '63, I went 23 and seven. They sent me a contract. I was making fourteen thousand dollars. In 1963, I went 23 and lost seven, and they sent me a contract two days before Christmas. You know, because you're thinking. In my mind, I think I was going to jump to about twenty-five thousand. You know, eleven thousand dollar raise. That was pretty big money in those days. On your raise. Mm-hmm. And anyway, I got the contract, opened it up, and it was for a $2,500 raise. And they told me that I needed uh, two or three years like that to get to 25000 And it just, you know, that's, you know, mentally it just, uh, you go out there and you give it all, your everything, and then you have a good year, and then they tell you you're going to give it a $25,000 raise. So it was, it was, uh, it was hard. Every year was hard for me to, to deal. You know, I held out every year just about. In, in 66, you went 16-8, and eight, but in the, again, in those eight losses, they scored a total of six runs for you. Um, you led the league in shutouts, and, and you had six games with over ten strikeouts. And this is the end of a four, a pretty amazing four-year stretch. You, you All four years, you had over 200 strikeouts. You averaged 18 wins and 235 strikeouts, and you held batters to a 210 batting average. That's pretty amazing four years. Yeah, I had a, I had a fairly good run those four years. Then after that, uh, you know, it was uh, more arm problems and uh, other, you know, uh, I had problems with my heel in '69, and uh, you know, then I finally had the problem with the ruptured Achilles tendon. So I went, you know, I hit a plateau, and then uh, you know, and I had that injury in 1970, and I was jumping up ahead of you there a little yep. bit, but. Uh, you know, I, that, I, that that took a lot of goals uh, that I had, you know, as a pitcher, what I wanted to do for myself, and uh, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to accomplish it. But by the end of 66 and going into 67, you changed managers again, and Dave Bristol had taken over the team. What was Dave Bristol like as a manager? Dave Bristol came up with the organization. Dave Bristol was fine. He had uh, Tommy Helms and Pete Rose in the minor leagues and a lot of guys that came up under uh, – uh, Dave Bristol. He was a, uh, uh, you know, he was a player's guy. He he he'd played a little ball over in the major leagues, but uh, he was a scrappy guy as a player, and, and uh, that's the way he wanted his teams to play. And uh, uh, 
Bristol was a good manager. I, I can't say anything uh, even halfway negative about him. He was uh, supporting everybody, and uh, he chewed you out when you, you know you need to chew it out. And uh, you know he he had uh, you know the, the ball players respect. He had their respect. You, you even did 67, you had a pretty good year. Your, your ERA went up a little bit, but still it was almost a run below league average. And you got your only opening day start in 1967. Do you, do you, how well do you remember that game against the Dodgers on, on April the 10th? The Dodgers, I thought it was Houston. Oh, I think it was, unless I wrote it down wrong. Anyway. Um, yeah, I remember the one start I had at opening day was against Houston, and Jimmy Wayne had a home run off me, and I lost three to nothing. Oh, you uh, no! This game you won seven innings, one run. Yeah, I don't remember that. To be honest with you, okay. I, you might have uh, looked on the wrong page. I something. might have been on on August the sixteenth that year. You let you left again. This is not the first time. I don't think this has happened. But you left a game in the sixth inning with a no hitter. You hurt your ankle in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I had, uh, it had been raining, and they had, at Pittsburgh and Forbes Field, uh, they had a thing that, a tarp, they just turned on the switch, and a tarp would come out of the ground. Now, that's hard for someone to listen to this that can imagine, but they had an automatic tarp that would come out of the mound, it would ran along the first baseline, and it would come up out of the ground, these big rollers and stuff, and it would roll the tarp out over the, the, uh, the uh, diamond, and then when they had to go, they roll it back in. It would roll in, and then they'd set it down, and then go down, and it was like a, oh, I don't know, maybe a foot and a half wood plank that covered the top of it. It was all along the right uh, first baseline, inside the foul territory, and uh, <clears throat> that was one night there where I had I had some really, uh, you know, there's times when you remember. I I had some really. Uh, outstanding uh, stuff that night, and I think I retired the first 18 guys that came up, and, uh, and the guy hit a hopper, uh, uh, and I went over and I slipped in the grass, and I really wrenched my uh, ankle, and I could I could go and blew up and everything else, and uh, so, and there was never a no hitter thrown in Forbes Field, and the whole all the time all the games play there, so. Anyway, who knows? But uh, that was another time. That, you know, one of the times that uh, something happened, just a freak accident. Another significant game, at least for for Reds fans, was on August the twenty sixth, and I'm sure this game doesn't. You don't remember this game, but it was your first game thrown to a young catcher from Oklahoma, a guy named Bench. Yeah, that uh, he he was a uh, when he first came up. I mean, you know. Uh, he carried himself, he was like 19 years old, and uh, he was already running the ball club by the time he was 20. I mean, that's, you know, somebody to have that ability. I never said two words my first three years. They told me just to shut up and take directions, you know, <laughs> veterans. And uh, when Bridge came up, he was already <laughs> he was already a team leader. I mean, they, you know, he was telling people what to do, and... Uh, you know, you didn't run out of ball, he'd tell you to run out of ball. You know, I mean, he was, he was uh, you know, that's the way he was. So I knew right away that that it was a special kid. Uh, there's nobody could throw out guys like he did and uh, could move around the back of the plate like a cat. And 
and then have that kind of offensive power, you know, as a hitter, being a good hitter too. Yeah. So. I, I, I read. I read a quote where you said that he comes out on the mound and treats me like a two-year-old, but so, but so help me, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where they come up with that, but evidently that must, must have happened. I don't remember that, but uh, I, 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 uh, some, I think I popped out to some sports writer, and I may have been kidding it a little yeah. bit. And, uh, <laughs> and, that's and I don't know, they bring it up on the Internet, you know, I saw it too, but... Uh, yeah, you never know. I mean, that's I probably I probably said something like that, and uh, just uh, see what happens. And it shows up four years later or fifty years later on that. Everything's yeah. on the internet now. Yeah. Right. So, so in nineteen, you're getting into nineteen sixty eight now, and you won five. You, you ended up sixteen and ten, and again, you were almost a half a run below league average in ERA. You won five of your last six, and finished the season with st- three straight shutouts, in which you struck out forty guys. One of the things I found interesting was. In, in, from the in, from the middle of July to the middle of August, in one month, you went two and two, but you pitched against Gaylord Perry, Don Drysdale, Tom Seaver, and then J- then Steve Carlton. That's pretty. That's a tough month. <laughs> yeah, well, you know that's uh, when you you know when you're a starter there, and uh, you know being number one or number two starter, you're gonna you're gonna face the other team's number one or two starters, and. Uh, that's just the way it is. That's just the way it was set up in those days. You know, they didn't, uh, you know, give us your best and we'll throw our best out there and see what happens. So I pitched quite a bit of uh, times, you know, quite a few times against Gibson and uh, Koufax and Drysdale and all, all those guys, you know, Fergie Jenkins and... Uh, Marichal you know, Perry. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I get asked all along about Koufax, you know, I said, yeah, I pitched against him as a warrior. I said, you don't want to, you don't want to give up more than one run. I said, you've been liable to get beat. Yep. You also threw a one hitter that year uh, against the Dodgers in May. Um, Versalis, who, who had won the MVP in the American League in '65, was the guy that got the hit off of you. That, that was. Well, that was yeah. Yeah. So so yeah. let's let's move into 1969 now, and we went into divisional baseball for the first time. And I guess baseball got what it wanted. It got a, a great race in the National League West and a huge comeback in the East when the Mets and the their miracle season. Right. Um. You you threw your final no hitter that year in in April against Houston. You struck out 13, and I even read that you you pulled a groin muscle running out an RBI double in the eighth, but you wouldn't come out of the ball game. No, I don't think that's that's right. No, I, I don't remember that part of it. Okay, uh, I don't think so. I, I my legs. I had always pretty good uh, legs. I never had problems with my legs. Just my shoulder, you know. Until that year later on, that I had started having problems with my heel. But uh, the first part of that, when I first, you know, that first uh, three or four games, I I, I think I was three and zero or something like that. I started off good, and then I started having shoulder problems, and uh, you know it. it that year was it was tougher for me to get up to 100 percent again, uh, you know, uh, at that time of my career. So you know, but I once I got over that shoulder problems and I was I was okay. I was good for you know I maybe good for 100 innings or so, and uh, before I had problems again. But uh, you know that's just the way it was. That was the time you just pitched and you tried to pitch nine innings every game. You know that's whether you show, you know, like the Cubs game and. Uh, Wrigley Field with no hitter, you know, I was, you didn't tell people about the, 
you know, I think I hit two guys and I walked about eight or nine, and I uh, was three and two on a lot of guys. In that game, I threw 187 pitches. So, you know, there was no pitch count. And then you figure out for 10 innings, you'd have eight warm-ups. So that's another 80 pitches on top of that. And then maybe another 40 pitches, 50 pitches warming up before the game. So you throw close to 400 pitches, you know. But uh, I started having more serious arm problems in 69. You know, that, that started out in that year. Not starting out that year, but after about the third game. You know, I had three games, those first three games, I think I pitched nine innings every, all three games. I'm not sure, but... And including one of them was your no-hitter. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and then in 1970, you, you tore the Achilles tendon, and, and I think it was your second or third start. It was on April the 16th. That uh, was the first start. Was first it your first start? start? And, yeah. uh, you know, and... and you, we can we could what what if forever if you you know if you'd have stayed healthy and, and pitched for those teams in the in the early seventies who knows how many games you could have won. Um, but then you know so three years later you were inducted into the Reds Hall of Fame. And, and, and Jim, we've talked about your your pitching all you know for for almost an hour and and but you were a pretty good hitter too. Well, as I said before, I could have started half the teams wanted me as a hitter and the other half wanted me as a pitcher. I had very just because I had a real strong arm, you know, I mean, I, I had an arm I, that, you know, they put me on the mound and I'd throw and, it, you know, they looked, you know, I mean, it was, I was I too hard. And, uh, but anyway, I, <clears throat> I, uh, yeah, I took my problem when they first came up to hit. I actually used me for a pinch hitter a couple of times. I mean, that's after other guys were used, you know, it might have been an extra inning game or something or, you know, and I, I took, you know, I got to, he let me hit with the extra guys, and uh, so I kept my timing and stuff up there for about four or five years. And then I, you know, then he then you just go in there and hit the days you start, and, you know, and uh, and then but you're always in a cage of bunting, you know, you're bunting all the time because you, know, you can help yourself win some ball games. And so I took pride in that, and uh, I know I helped myself uh, with the bat, and you know by bunting, I was a pretty good bunter and. Uh, you know, people, you know, you heard, if you're a starting pitcher, you know, you should, in the National League, you you know, you should be able to bunt. I mean, that's, because you can certainly help yourself stay in the ball game. number one. Mm-hmm. If you're a lousy bunter, the manager's going to make a change. And, but if you can bunt, you know, the, the manager, can, you're going to get it down and get that runner over to second or get him to second to third. Uh, uh, he'll, he'll keep you in there and you stay in the game. I was reading some numbers, and, and there, you had the uh, you handled some some pretty big names pretty well. I, I read that Willie Mays hit 195 against you, and Billy Williams hit 185. Ernie Banks 216. Well, that may be right. Uh, I knew that the Mays did not like to hit off me, and uh, Roberto Clemente, Clemente didn't hit off me like they hit off me. And uh, I had good luck with Billy Williams, but I can't say that much about Willie Sargio and Willie McCovey. They, they were they were tough outs for me, and they hit you know balls with power. I mean, uh, those guys. Uh, of course, Mays did too, and Aaron. And you know, Aaron hit a few home runs off me. I think of all, but I had to, I was trying to figure out the other day. I pitched against Hank Aaron uh, ten years. So that, that's a lot of at-bats, and I think he hit six home runs off me. So, uh, you know, that's I had pretty good luck with him. 
But uh, <clears throat> the uh, Rusty Saab was a tough out for me, but he didn't have the power like uh, Sargent and McCovey. Man, I, I just uh, I never could get my curveball over to those guys. I just seemed like I'd have to challenge them. When I challenged them, they took me over. I mean, they, they wow, you know, they, glad it didn't get hit back at me. <laughs> Jim, what would you say, other than money, is the is the biggest way the game has changed since you've played? Well, I think the you know the pitching, you know, they're uh, the way they uh, you know handle these pitchers today. Uh, there's certainly a lot of more uh, uh, the relief pitchers uh, that uh, with left-handed hitter, the left-handed pitchers just coming in to pitch one one batter against a left-handed batter. That was unheard of when I, you know, when I played. Uh, they started, uh, they might bring a, the left-hander in to face the left-hand hitter, but he was going to play face the right-hand hitter and the next hitter. You know, you get, you know, these guys can, I don't care who you are. If, you, if you're a pitcher, if you're right or left-handed, it doesn't make any difference if they're left-hand hitters or right-hand hitters. You get them both out. But today it's such a... Uh, you know, and all the managers play the same way. They all, you know, nobody wants to be different. I mean, it's, uh, yep. you know, they all make those moves, pitching changes, games go three and a half hours, and uh, that's because of all those moves and stuff, and, uh, and, and the pitching count. But the game today, from what I played, you know, it's basically the same game. Uh, you know, I see guys throw from the outfield and they, there's bad arms, there's guys with bad arms, terrible arms. And uh, when I played, there was guys in the outfield that couldn't throw very well. And uh, there was guys that had great arms. But today, I don't really see here anybody having, you know, we used to take infield practice. They don't do it anymore before the games. And people used to come on, this, you know, on the road and watch Mel Queen from right field, you know, when they, you know, take infield and outfield practice. And he would, uh, they would put on a show and, you know, he'd, uh, People kind of watch infield outfield practice. They don't do that anymore, so I don't know why they don't, but they just don't do it. The, I have to ask you this question. The Reds' leadoff hitter, Sin Su Chu, has gotten hit 10 times in the first month of the season with no retaliation. Would that have happened in your day? <clears throat> well, I don't know. I don't know, you know uh, if he's getting hit uh, you know, accidentally or if it's been intentional. But uh, in my day, if, if Frank Robinson got hit a lot too, and uh, but he stood on the plate, you know, and, yep. and guys threw inside on him, and they hit him. Matt Drysdale, you know, and uh, if somebody hit him, you know, and I'm pitching, uh, you know, it's just part of the game. That's the way it is. You got you got to protect your own players and. Uh, you know, but I, I, many a time I'd ask Robinson, I said, do you think he was throwing at you? And he'd say no. Or he'd tell me, you know, truthfully, what, whatever it was. And if he'd say yes, you know, a lot of times you can't tell. But, you know, if he says yes, well, then you're going to protect your players. That's how the game is. Yeah. But the way these umpires are today, you come inside a little bit, they start getting uh, excited real fast. Yeah, they do. Jim, you're still involved with the Reds, and, and I believe you go down to Dream Week at Goodyear every year. Um, is that, tell us a little bit about the, about the Dream Week experience. Fantasy camp. Yeah, I've been doing that for a long time with the Reds. That, uh, uh, 
that's a fun uh, week for uh, guys that want to come, and gals too, because we have women that, that come uh, now, and uh, spend a, a, a week with uh, guys that used to play like myself, and uh, they go down and compete against uh, teams, and uh, the last, I don't know, how many, the last six years, the Reds have uh, taken over the uh, uh, program, and uh, it is really a first-class program. So if anybody's listening and has an idea that I think for a Christmas gift or whatever it is or just a gift uh, their wife wants to give them or their husband wants to give their wife a, a, a trip to, to Goodyear, Arizona, to beautiful facilities, it's all first-class. And uh, the stories that go on, uh, Jack Billingham, Lee May, I mean, there's all of us guys that... Uh, Go down and it's, I'm telling you, then they have a kangaroo court where Doug Flynn and uh, Bobby Wine get involved. And, uh, it, you know, it's, uh, you just uh, have a, a week full of uh, uh, wonderful, wonderful memories. Uh, and uh, so I've been doing it for, I don't know, 15 years I've had it. But it, it, it's got to be now uh, one of the best uh, that, that, that's out there. Jim, to wrap up here, you had many, many milestones in your careers, incredible games. Is there one memory or one game that stands out in your mind over anything else? Well, I don't know. You know, when I started, I, I had goals. And uh, I had goals of uh, winning 20 games in a season. I was a starter, so I was able to do that. And I had goals of... Uh, of uh, getting to the World Series and got that, got to the All-Star game and, and got that, I was forced to get that. And then uh, uh, as far as one game, um, you know, the, I, I think every starting pitcher wants to throw a no-hitter. I mean, uh, and uh, maybe the first no-hitter that I had to go 10 innings against the Cubs and won that game, it was, uh, it was quite a, uh, you know, it's a game that you'll never... You know, I'll never ever forget because I, I, in my mind, I still go through those hitters, and I remember like that day just like it was yesterday. And I couldn't tell you any of the other days of pitches uh, outside of a few games I remember that, uh, I, you know, I couldn't tell you what happened. But on that that day was uh, that day was a wonderful day for the Reds. We won the ball game, and I and I got my first no hitter. Well, Jim, I, I want to thank you very, very much for giving us so much of your time this evening. I've really enjoyed it, and I think our listeners will really enjoy it, too, learning about you and your career and the Reds in the 60s. Thanks again very, very much for, for spending this time with us. Yeah, my, my, my uh, pleasure, Bill. It was nice talking to you, and uh, you did a good job. Well, thank you. And that's Bill Lack for Red Leg Nation Radio.